Good morning. So it's Wednesday. I don't know if you missed it, but I am so bummed I missed last week's podcast. It was this podcast that I had to reschedule with all the New York craziness. We were trying to meet in person and then it got pushed back. Uh, I had a great event in New York. My T hormone balance was picked to be well and good. 2019 trend of the year, which is exciting. We did an MPAC workout with Reebok and Forbes women, and it was a whirlwind of fun and amazing, but also made me miss a week of podcasts. So my apologies. If you're new to my podcast, I'm Emily Schramm, Meathead Hippie. I had to explain Meathead, so just in case you don't know, Meathead as in, yes, I do like well-sourced, sustainable meat. Uh, but I also am just a total meathead as in the gym meathead, AKA I used to wear a lot of cutoffs and I still do a lot of bicep curls. So meathead hippie is just an accumulation of conversations that talk about all and any things related to meathead or hippie. I feel like we've been a little bit more hippie recently, but uh, today is somebody that I'm really excited to talk about. If you have known me, I love talking about the brain. I love talking about how the gut connects to the brain. I'm actually currently running a gut challenge, a seven-day happy gut challenge. It doesn't mean you're going to have a happy gut in seven days, but it does mean you're going to learn all about why you bloat, why you burp, (laughs) why you have weird poop, all of those things. Um, And I love running this program, so I'm rerunning it. If you are interested, in this, any type of thing. If you're not already in it, the Facebook group is where to go. I do Facebook lives every Tuesday and then randomly peppered in between. It's where I talk about meathead hippie stuff, but in a smaller scale. So if you don't have a lot of time or if you just hate Facebook and you need a breath of fresh air, these are incredible humans, good humans that are just helping support each other. So it's an incredible tribe. So jump into that and you can learn more about the gut challenge and learn more about the things I'm doing. I think the only thing I wanted to say is since it's Wednesday on Friday, this Friday at Platform Strength, I'm celebrating. I'm about to turn 30. So I'm doing a bring a friend Friday day. So come any of the classes. You just have to sign a waiver or you can reserve your spot through the link in the bio of the Instagram, which is instagram.com slash platform strength. It is uh, classes being ran. Classes are being ran 6, 7 a.m., noon, 4, 5, 6, 7. I'm coaching the noon. I would love to see you there. If you're a member, if you're not a member, if you're curious, bring a friend, come try my favorite programming celebrate my birthday a little bit early with me. Since I will be out of town, I would love to see you. And then we're going to do some cool stuff with Verizon. They want to give away a mega boom, blah, 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 blah. It's going to be awesome. All right. So Ben Velasquez, he is my guest today. I uh, just found him through a friend, Adam, at Wellspring when I was talking about brain and how fascinated, fascinated I was with the brain gut connection. I had concussions. My stomach uh, has been messed up my whole life until I figured it out. And so Ben really is the expert when it comes to movement in concussion protocol. But I love this concept because what Ben talks about is, you know, the degree of which your concussion is sometimes is like how the house is built, right? So nutrition is such a component and taking the right things and preparing mentally and physically, you know, pre or post and figuring out what type of concussion we have. There's so many types of concussions. We, We get into that. There's over 50 now that they're starting to understand. And so thinking of brain trauma more than just, I hit my head. Uh, What does it do to my body? What does it do to my brain? What is it doing to my system? And what is it doing to my movement patterns? We get really nerdy about 
supplements to help with ATP production and how to just recover correctly. So I think anybody that knows somebody that has had a concussion or you yourself have had a concussion, this is a must listen to because it's important. Uh, You'll be surprised with some of the things you learn. He is found at benvelasquez.com and then the rest of the stuff is in the show notes. Super honored to have you, Ben. Really glad that we were finally able to make it. Without further ado, here's Ben. (laughs) I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. All right, Ben, Ben Velasquez, it's been such an honor to be introduced to you and digging down the rabbit hole of the work that you do. I just am so glad that you are on Meathead Hippie today. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me and, of course, all my amazing listeners. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. So I just, you know, the side story of me and how I got introduced to you very recently, I was at Wellspring and I was talking about concussions and brain trauma and concussion protocol. And I know you work specifically with athletes. So I would first like to have you just say with the work that you're doing with athletes, if you could summarize this, the sought after incredible work. I've, I just listened to your, um, there was a recent interview that you just did and I just, uh, who was it with? Uh, it was with Dr. Robert Pastor, your friend, Dr. Robert. Yeah, 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 Dr. Robert. That was a really good interview. I mean, uh, my partner, Dr. G, and I uh, didn't plan on going down such a a, a gluten biochemistry rabbit hole, but those two guys kind of geeked out, and I thought it was good. I know it was really great. So to do a quick recap. I already had I've interviewed kind of into this um, with the intro, but the work that you love to do, if you could summarize it, what would it what would it be? Yeah, so I'll give you a little backstory because it always helps. My background, my undergraduate degree is in, in aeronautical engineering. And so I, I, uh, I didn't like that field. So I went back to school for physiology and then worked in corporate fitness for about four or five years uh, before I decided that I wanted to venture out and try to get into pro sports. Um, and so I worked, uh, I was able to get into pro sports, uh, with, uh, a strength and conditioning background that I had. And I broke into the WHL, which was the Western hockey league, sort of their minor leagues. And I would fly out to Saskatchewan and write programs for uh, a WHL team once a month. And that was a great learning opportunity. So I was able to <clears throat> springboard that opportunity into working with individual athletes, predominantly in hockey and track and field and more standard performance-based stuff, strength and conditioning, off-season stuff. And uh, about, uh, I would say, 15 years ago, I realized that none of my athletes were healthy in the off season and that the standard PT model was not really doing it and the team really had no plan. So uh, I uh, started studying with a doctor by the name of Dr. Guy Boyer, who's an osteopath uh, from Marseille and a pretty incredible individual uh, himself. And he had a non-accredited physio program that he called SOMA training. So it was a four-year program that I did and then started working with athletes in more of a uh, 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 a real 
rehabilitative capacity, more what I call performance rehabilitation, which is kind of like when they get away from standard PT or standard medical care, there's still a big gap between them being able to actually be field ready or game ready. So I started filling that gap. And then I know this is a long story, but it'll lead to the question part. Yeah, about, I would say it's been about maybe a little over three years um, when the concussion uh, topic really started getting hot in the media. Uh, I, I basically um, said, you know what, let me just evaluate how many of my guys uh, have suffered TBI. And when I started looking at the numbers, they were as high as 80% on the athletes that I was seeing. So I said, um, I need to figure out more. I need to understand more about this and I need to understand what my role is in this. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I kind of started really looking at the mechanical role uh, and the role of exercise within TBI, whether it's to mitigate the risk factor or you know, dealing with an athlete that suffered multiple concussions. And that's where we are today. I love it so much because you're the first person I've really heard talk about concussion prevention through this lens. Because, you know, I think it's like, okay, what do we do when somebody does hurt their head? And then the, the rabbit hole ensues and who knows, you know, I don't actually even know. I would love to know what the actual protocol is right now. I just see it through NFL. If they have a concussion, what are the series of tests that is the standard and maybe the part of the broken system. I don't, I'm not sure because it isn't looking at the nutrition components and the, uh, you know, the non, <laughs> the non-physical symptoms mm-hmm. maybe as sure. much. What, do, what is the concussion protocol for somebody that does get a concussion in professional sports? Uh, well, uh, each, uh, professional sport, uh, has their own, um, uh, concussion protocol. And that means, um, they all uh, have different ways that they look, they do specific baseline testing uh, when the athlete is quote unquote healthy and uh, hasn't suffered an event. And then there are certain standards of practice um, in most sports before they actually allow the athlete to get back on the field. And they are getting better. Uh, up until not too long ago, uh, the protocols were were very archaic. They were just psychosocial tests like the impact test or the SCAT test where the athlete has to take a cognitive uh, test and it's a pass or fail type thing. But now they're involving neurologists and a lot of the teams are doing specific eye exercises. Some are doing imaging. Some are doing specific uh, vestibular uh, uh, tests that they do that are dynamic right on the field. So it's getting better and better, I would say. Um, uh, I'd say that in the last six months, it's really improved. Well, that's promising, right? (laughs) That's good. Do you, are there blood tests? I know you work with a lot of, uh, you know, you're the part of the mechanical component and you have a lot of people that you work with on the other components that are involved. And so for blood tests or tests that people that you recommend, and maybe not for athletes specifically, but for somebody that is wanting to learn more about the extremity of their TBI or their concussion, Mm -hmm. uh, what are some tests that you can look at that are tangible? Well, that's a really good question. The way I like to explain it is that every concussion is its own unique little snowflake and unique to that athlete, but it has three components that are undeniably always present. There is some neurological component, 
um, that means that, you know, the information that the brain is processing is somehow corrupted because whether it's the muscles of the eyes or the inner ear or the jaw or um, somehow that information is corrupted. Uh, secondly, there's a mechanical component almost always um, when an athlete has suffered an event they'll have a mechanical compensation there, whether it be in the cervical spine or in the thoracic spine or both. Um, but there'll be some compensation there that causes a mechanical dysfunction. And then finally, to your point, there is a biochemical. Um, and there are guys that are a lot smarter than me that this is what they do that um, are researching this currently. And what they find is that when there's an event or a concussion, there's a cascade of hormones that exists uh, in the brain. And uh, the resultant, basically, when you look at the blood work, it looks uh, almost like an autoimmune disease. So all of the inflammatory markers that, uh, that uh, a doctor is looking at will be elevated, systemic inflammatory markers will be elevated. Um, and if it's allowed to go long-term, uh, we're seeing a lot of the same symptoms as autoimmune. So mm -hmm. problems with everything from the thyroid to the gut to, uh, to um, and uh, androgenic hormones like testosterone and, and so forth. We're seeing issues in, in that uh, almost identical to someone that uh, is suffering from an autoimmune disease. So basically the immune system is, is attacking the individual after a certain amount of time. Yeah. Oh my God. And I, I'm grateful for understanding, you know, the, the components of the more this is getting out there of how it's not just like, Oh, you hit your head. And I think there's been great work in the last few years. I think what you said is like three years ago about the attention coming to it. And I've just always, I always, I can't even really watch football or MMA because it just makes my head hurt. Cause I just, <laughs> I just get so stressed out about it. Yeah. Uh, do you think that will change? This is a tangent, but do you think that will change the well, way? The NFL has already changed the NFL. The big knock on the NFL specifically this season is all these high scoring games. And the fact that there is no defense now and, mm -hmm. That's part in part due to the rule changes and the fact that, you know, they're going to call a penalty for something that is even remotely questionable now. And so the game is changing and it has to change because, uh, you know, if you've watched an NFL game on the sideline, you know, it looks like, like a car accident and, uh, you know, these, these, uh, the, the, these players are quickly realizing that for a three-year career, they're jeopardizing their, their life, you know, the, the rest of their life. So there are measures being taken, um, I would say, in many sports. I think what's most misunderstood is the globality of what the concussion is. It's still thought of as an injury that happens above the shoulders, and it doesn't. I would love to dig into that because I, I recently listened, well, it was a while ago, but Dr. Mark Gordon on Dave Asprey talking about Titan, he might not be the first, so you probably know more of where this work was from. So I'm sorry if I'm not sourcing it correctly, but there was the types of concussions and assuming it's you hit your head, you have a concussion. Would you be able to dig in a little bit about the types, like the shock, shock waves and uh, for 
people specifically on that podcast were people going to war and having vibrations in their helmet and seeing mm-hmm. concussions in a different light. Can you explain that a little bit more of how concussions aren't just above the head or above the shoulders? Yeah. So, um, uh, what your, uh, what your, uh, what you alluded to was, um, the difference between an impact concussion and an impulse concussion. Mm-hmm. And those defini- those definitions are changing. In fact, I, I, I forget who, what, who it was that told me, but at a recent conference in Europe, they came up with uh, 50 or more different uh, types of concussions. Wow. My definition. So I, I think when it comes to the military and what you were referring to, uh, the, the shock waves that are associated with the armament that they're using now, which has gotten stronger and lighter, um, is an insult to the body in a way that, uh, essentially, uh, rattles the nervous system, right? So, you may not have an actual lesion on the brain like you would with an impact concussion, but you you affect the central nervous system in such a way through the shockwave that the symptoms are exactly the same um, as you would getting an impact. Mm-hmm. And um, the sad part about that is that because it's not like a broken arm or a leg where you have a cast, a lot of these veterans and these soldiers go misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all um, because their symptoms are always put under this huge umbrella of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, mm-hmm. when in fact there, there's a physiological insult that's being dealt with. Hmm. And that's such a harder story to explain you know, mm-hmm. if, and also even if you're stubborn or if you also are like, no, I'm fine. I'm tough. I got this. You just have no idea that what's happening, which is why tests that are more accessible are probably the best solution to figure out what it is going on in the biochemical in, in that plane for you. That's really interesting. So you played hockey. So you, did you get into this because you had concussions yourself? I didn't, uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, I didn't play hockey. In fact, I, I, I'm terrible on skates, Oh, <laughs> which, was a, which was a joke uh, when I was working with the hockey players. Got it. Okay. Baseball. Uh, I played baseball at a pretty high level, at a collegiate level and a, and a, a semi-pro level. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it always attracted me to the gym. And I always, I always liked the idea of the science involved in exercise. So that was always attractive to me. And um, it, it, it is, you know, when you meet the best guys in the field, it's all math. It's all math and science, you know, uh, and, and they're putting together a plan based on information that they gather and where they want that athlete to be. So that was always very exciting. And I'm taking the same approach when dealing with TBI. It's kind of like reverse engineering uh, the injury or reverse engineering the the uh the injury history of the athlete that's the fun part i love that too because that's where you really address the concussion prevention because i i would love to know about um you briefly mentioned this in the digging that i was doing 
pre-interview, but I was thinking of, you know, we have an injury and we don't even realize what it's doing to our neurological system. We just kind of see it as this is something that will heal, do the things you can to heal it. Uh, I would love to talk about if an injury is there, if it's present, how it plays into our body and our stress levels and seeing it you know, my sister has this hip injury and I tore my hip labrum a couple of years ago. And I, I remember it feeling so traumatic and mm-hmm. not being able to deal with the trauma of it because it's like, it's a hip injury. It'll heal. It's external. Mm-hmm. Get over it. You know, and I think that's our, the way we cope with things. But can we talk about how injuries can, can really lead up to not being able to handle something like a brain injury as, as well? Yeah, so the, I think there's one study that's been done so far, and don't quote me on this, but m- maybe there's more. And the one study says that uh, you're three to four times, I think the number was like 3.7 times more like, likely to suffer an ACL injury post-concussion. So having a concussion, um, you're three to four times more likely to suffer an ACL. Well, I am a... F- I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it goes the other way. Um, so uh, you have a perfect example would be, you know, a sport like uh, like football where you would have a, a sprained ankle or a turf toe and you cause a mechanical compensation. So, you know, in my opinion, you uh, you you interfere with your body's ability to accept and communicate uh, force. So accept, communicate, and dissipate force uh, because you have a compensation or an insult somewhere along that kinetic chain. So you have that ankle injury. So that ankle injury, if it's not rehabbed 100% um, and you're not 100% uh, uh, ready to go on that ankle, then in my opinion, you you're creating an environment where you can't dissipate force. And if you can't dissipate force, then you're, you're, you're more likely to get hurt with an impact than someone who doesn't have an ankle injury. Hmm. And when you think about it in those terms, it's like, oh, yeah, that's common sense. But no one really looks at it that way. Um, they look at them as completely disassociated. So um, that's part one. Part two is that uh, it's... Uh, it is an axiom in osteopathy and in many uh, manual therapies, they respect the association between the pelvis and the skull so that um, in simple terms, you know, your occiput at the back of your skull and your sacrum are like brother and sister. So they move like in, in, in synchronicity and your temporal bone and your ilium uh, your hip bone, they also move like sister and brother in synchronicity. So if there's a problem at your pelvis because of an ankle injury or a knee injury or, or a labrum tear, and you're in a compact, you're in a contact sport, then you definitely will create a compensation with that sister brother uh, articulation in your skull. Oh, this is so good that you're working on this. So do you see, a, do you prefer seeing people when injury has come and they're more likely to have a concussion or do you always see people that have a concussion and then now are having injury and trying to like chicken and egg, which one came first? Is that more what you 
work on is with healing or preventative or maybe both? It's both. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still seeing my share of orthopedic injuries coming in because that's just the nature of sport. Right. Um, but, uh, unfortunately when it comes to TBI myself and the the team that I have here in New York, we kind of see cases that have been everywhere else because a, I'm not an MD or, you know, a neurologist. So it's, you don't have the pedigree there. And I understand people want to go see, you know, uh, MDs first. I get that. Um, but I do work with MDs. Um, and, and most of the time it's like, you know, we tried this, we tried that, we tried this and I went back to play and now it took less contact for me to get my second or third concussion. Mm -hmm. And I, and I never quite felt right and never felt right. So we take that three tier approach, you know, they get their blood work done. Um, have a couple of excellent manual therapists that work here. And then I take care of the mechanical portion and we work, you know, little by little to try to get them right. I love it. I think uh, what you said about concussions being more, I guess, easier to catch is the wrong way of saying that. But once you have one, it's more likely, like my last one was my worst one. It was like, oh my gosh, if you hit your head one more time, it will never be okay. So I think that's so true is how much more, how much more real it can be the more consistent you are. And so for somebody that's, you know, maybe they had a freak accident, so they're not in a contact sport, but they are in a, you know, their mom or a sister, a brother, a friend, and they're working and then they have something happen like a car wreck or they slip on ice and they fall, no matter the extremity. Uh, Is there an, gray matter is really what this is. Your company uh, putting together kind of the best protocols for somebody that has concussions. What? Mm -hmm what would be the first thing that you would say that everyone should know about if they do hit their head? Yeah, I think the, the first thing that I would definitely do is to, uh, uh, is to change your diet. And mm-hmm. my, my, my partner and colleague, Dr. Janopoulos always says that, you know, you should go see Ben first, but I personally feel like the biochemical intervention is probably the most important for everyone. Um, I think, you know, the body's amazing. And in most cases, most cases, it'll start the healing process right away, um, provided that you have a really good environment for healing. So the biochemistry plays a huge role, you know, from the standpoint that you want to lower inflammation, number one, and number two, you want to provide more ATP to your brain and the neurons in your brain. So in order to do that, you have to have the proper nutrition. And uh, so the biochemistry for me is number one. Number two is getting, uh, if I'm talking to the average Joe, I find a really good manual uh, soft tissue practitioner um, in my area that I can go see to make sure that they check your cervical spine, to make sure that they check your thoracic spine. Perhaps they do some type of cranial sacral work. So I was just going to ask your thoughts yeah. on cranial sacral. Oh, no. It's when, with the right practitioner, it's wonderful. It really is. Um, you know, it, uh, it respects, you know, the, the laws of anatomy and biomechanics that, that I just referred to in terms of the, you know, the cranium and, and the sacrum. Um, but yeah, I would do that. And then the exercise is a tricky one because people aren't sure what to do now and, and how much to do. And sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with athletes, they, 
they um, associate exercise with uh, going after it really hard rather than rehabilitation. So this is rehabilitation. So, and the other thing, they don't know what markers to look at. So that's always the hardest component to integrate. And it's the hardest component for uh, uh, the people that are looking at concussions now to accept is that exercise plays a huge role. Yeah, because there really isn't. That's why I think the space that you're filling is so wonderful because there, it's just saying rest. And that's going to drive any athlete, let alone somebody that's used exercise as a way to release stress. Mm-hmm. It's going to drive them crazy. So I feel, um, what is there any sort of guideline as what's too much? I remember I was this nut job that was mm-hmm. like, I, I'm, I'm totally fine and I'll rest two days and then I'll go do box jumps. And I remember so vividly like mm-hmm. my brain couldn't predict the top of the box. And I was like, Oh my God, why did I think that this was okay to figure out, you know? And so it mm-hmm. took like a total shin busting mm-hmm. in order for me to realize I needed to take more than, more than a couple of days of off, but I wouldn't have even known what would feel like rehab, you know, for my brain. Cause my brain is like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. So mm-hmm. the psycho psychology of getting somebody to do something without them feeling like they're just sitting in a dark room. Um, are there some exercises you recommend or, the, you know, is it more cardio? Is it more move your body or is it just more of uh, let's just see what's firing and what's not? Yeah. I said, I would say if you weren't, if you didn't have the proper guidance of someone who really understands what they're looking at, because they need to look at what the body's response is to that exercise protocol. So is that athlete or, or, regular person are they uh the protocol that i've that that i have them go through is it stimulating a sympathetic response or a parasympathetic response and that's a really good indicator so is your heart rate you know shooting up is your blood pressure shooting up are your pupils dilating um is your blood sugar tanking uh that kind of stuff you want to pay attention to and that kind of stuff will in a very uh, general way um, without being real specific um, in a very general way, it's a good way to monitor um, how much and what type of exercise you can do. Now, having said that, if I were to say, Hey, do one thing, I would say uh, the biggest thing is rest is not smart on many levels number one is because you're going to decrease your um cardiac efficiency or your cardiorespiratory efficiency and so just by doing that you're going to deliver less atp to the cells in your brain for healing so um the first thing that we do is yeah we we devise a specific uh aerobic protocol for the athletes no matter where they came from um so they're doing a specific specific aerobic component and then they're doing a specific exercise component uh designed to uh uh neuromuscular integration so reestablish their postural system that's what we're working on Mm, i love it i Mm. think Uh, So all the things basically of if you're recovered, so figuring out sympathetic or parasympathetic and waiting, do you just wait until consistent parasympathetic signs are like, do you do pretty consistently that 
eight heart rate variability. Uh, is that something that's been a part of figuring out protocol? What are your, th- what are your thoughts? Absolutely. Our heart rate variability is a big one. Heart rate is a big one. Um, resting and during exercise. Mm. Uh, blood glucose is quickly becoming another one that we're looking at. Um, I love that. I haven't gotten into that as much. It makes sense when you're stressed, how it would tank. Uh, do you, is it just, can you dig into that a little bit more for me of like, is it hypoglycemic responses that you're looking for? Yeah. Hypoglycemic responses. What's going you know, you don't want spikes at all. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't want spikes and dips. Uh, so you, you, you don't want to see that in the blood sugar cause that indicates, you know, a response. And so we look for that. And we look to regulate that. Uh, and, and it's funny because when you're, for most of these patients that we're seeing, they've suffered multiple concussions and they're still symptomatic. So we want to write them a protocol that's going to take them right to the point where we increase that threshold, but we don't kick them off the ledge. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes for some athletes that may look like uh, uh, five minutes, three times a day of specific exercise. Um, And for other athletes, it may look like a half hour, twice a day. It depends on what we're faced with. But yeah, the sympathetic response, we look at heart rate variability, we look at blood sugar, we look at heart rate, we look at oxygen perfusion. um, And, uh, and then we do specific um, uh, neurological uh, tests that we can do here, like that, that are very standard, like the Romberg test and the, and the Fukuda test, which is more dynamic tests to kind of see where the athletes, um, uh, how they manage themselves in space. Mm-hmm. So what's the brain telling the body and what's the body telling the brain? I love it. I think uh, I'm just really into the blood glucose thing because I'm curious, you know, I'm such a believer in higher fat diets and uh, with, I don't know your thoughts, we could do a rabbit hole on exogenous ketones for the brain. And I'm sure you've been asked about this a lot, but I, mm-hmm. um, as far as blood sugar issues, so even if their diet hasn't changed, they would create more of a blood glucose drop. Like their body would be more likely to hit hypoglycemic, even if the diet is exactly the same pre and post concussion. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. it's, what we're seeing in a lot of cases is that we're seeing, um, a, a a response uh, by the autonomic nervous system to the event. Um, and most of the time, that response is a dysregulation of one or more of those functions. So whether it be that the thyroid is affected, whether it be that your blood sugar is affected, and it's generally uh stimulated by a, 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 a vagal nerve response so um associated with the, with with the concussion so the vagus nerve is responding to the impact and it's regulating the nervous system um and when it responds that dysregulation could rear its head in in all or the above in in any or all of the above um systems and we've seen a lot. The vagus nerve is just such, I, it needs to be talked about more. I, I'm just fascinated by it. I think it's the polyvagal theory. That's the book I'm reading right now. I'm just like, so 
so cool. I love this. Mm-hmm. this is, I'm, I love that you're letting me interview you. This is very <laughs> <helpful> for me. <laughs> this it's is my pleasure. Fun. I love talking about it. Okay, so I'm going to dig into, this is kind of just back and forth, just to make sure everyone listening has like a very clear response of, or a clear idea of what lowering inflammation looks like. So I'm going to throw out some supplements and see if you actually recommend these or if they're kind of like, you know, neither here nor there. So lowering inflammation, we just had a concussion. Uh, is turmeric a big piece of this? Or do you need your body to have its own inflammatory, anti-inflammatory process? Yeah, so I have to preface my responses by saying that this is not my lane. This is my colleague's lane. Totally. <laughs> I do. I, I can give it my best shot. And okay. <laughs> they'll probably call me out on a couple of things, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, he, yeah he, we recommend supplements, and he uses a specific type of turmeric and curcumin. Uh, he uses omega-3s. Uh, he uses, uh, let's see, for inflammation. Um, I believe he's using CoQ10. Yes. There's a few things yeah. that he's using to lower inflammation, but pr- primarily um, he's putting most of our guys and gals on ketogenic diets. Oh, I love so, hearing that. That makes yeah. me so happy. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, right away too. And That's that makes a big difference. It does because the amount of, if you think of it like this, why are we doing that? One is to lower inflammation, but more importantly, there's with ketones, I believe the number is up to 16 times more ATP that's provided to the cell. Mm. So, you know, you want to have as much fuel for that healing process as possible. And glucose is inefficient at that. So we want to do that in combination with uh, the proper supplements. I love it. I love hearing that because it's true. I mean, it's glucose is just mm-hmm. the same uh, variability of the, what we talked about, blood sugar, doing that mm-hmm. to your brain and then increasing ATP. My favorite, I was going to ask about coenzyme Q10, which you said yes. And then how, if you guys, have you ever gotten, have you ever done consistent cordyceps before? I have not. And I know Dr. G knows all about that. And I know that uh, a colleague and a friend, Ben Greenfield, is a big believer in cordyceps. Mm, yes. Uh, I just don't know enough about it, to be very honest. Um, uh, but I know that my, my, uh, my colleague and my partner uh, in Gray Matters, by the way, Gray Matters is a think tank we created. Um, so we created a think tank. We're getting, now we're up to about six or seven people that have incredible specialties in all facets of sports science and medical science from imaging to we've got one of the top guys that that developed a lot of the blood tests that we do now for food allergies. And so we just get together and on a, you know, on a conference call once a month and we just chat about what we know, what we're finding with relation to TBI and, uh, and, and that's great matters. I love the name. I think it's perfect. <laughs> uh, I, I also, it makes me think immediately because that's true. It's, I'm just so grateful that you guys are believers in high fat diets, especially for brain because gray matter and myelin is so fatty. It's fatty tissue. So it just sure. make, makes sense, you know, in so many ways, it's just such a, um, it's really good. It's powerful work. And just, I don't, I know you don't know me. We kind of just met through this podcast, but I have had eight concussions, which is why this is so 
close to my heart. Because wow, Emily, what are you doing? What, what <laughs> my, my are, mom, you, are you boxing part time? I know. I, I mean, I, you know, once you have a couple, they're a little bit more prevalent in your life. And I think my mom thinks my head's a magnet. And so I was a little bit of a, I, a risk adverse child and adults. And so I would always be either on a motorcycle or a wakeboard or a snowboard in some realm. And so I finally, when I started connecting the brain with my gut health, that's when I started changing my life completely. So it's really how I got into this field. So it's just such a, so it's really cool to hear about this think tank. And I think you guys should record these and put them up in the work for the world to listen to, because everyone needs to know this information. I love it. It's a, it's a great idea, actually. Yeah, I didn't think of that. We should. Yeah. Um, it, it's exciting. And it's, you know, it's, it's an area that it's amazing to me how little information there is. It's almost like a blind eye was turned until, it, you know, this whole CTE thing came, came to uh, in the public eye. Yes, because it had, I mean, it had to take tragedy multiple times in a, for people to kind of wake up to it because it, it's that line of being entertained or being educated. Sometimes we always choose the entertainment because it's a little bit easier of a path, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a, you know, I heard there's two really interesting facts. Uh, uh, my, my cousin is a, is a criminal defense attorney and we were talking about TBI and I forget in what context, but he said to me, he remembers reading a report that uh, like 70% of death row inmates had had serious brain injuries. Wow. And, you know, I found that like to be amazing, um, an amazing piece of information because you know, like you said, you don't think about the ramifications of, you know, how that affects everyone else in the world. And I think then this is like the, a much deeper issue, but when you think of access to, so back to this concussion protocol and like, if you have the ability to have a lower inflammatory diet before the concussion, or you take the fish oil already and you, your body is just prepped a little bit more, or maybe a lot of bit more to handle something when that time comes or if it does come. And so when you think of people that are more prone to it, what is, what do they have access to? Do they have access to these things? Most likely not, you know, it's just, it's a big problem that I, you know, it's a little overwhelming sometimes when you're like, well, how we, you know, are so lucky with our, the life that we live and having this information and being able to take care of our body. But when you look at economically, this, the differences between what we have and what most of the world has, it's, night and day and we have access to so much but so many people just don't have access to it so it's it's important to talk about it especially when it comes to understanding that if they hit their hit their head they're less likely to be able to handle it well and it could end up being you know it's no excuse but it still is something that has to be considered in all situations oh yeah no question about it yeah no question about it it's something that has to be you 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 hit the nail on the head you have to be able to make it part of your diagnosis whether you're a, a professional sports team doctor or you're a pediatrician working somewhere in you know in urban america you you have to understand the impact that uh and an improperly treated head injury can have on a person short term and long term 
you need to really understand that. Hmm. I love it. Well, let's pivot a little bit with the t- uh, time that we have. I want to just ask, this is, you know, the mechanical piece. This is your jam. You've been in this industry for, you know, decades. You are sought after as far as being a trainer, not just for concussion protocol, but you've just, you just know this space really well. So speaking of like athletes and making them better athletes, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that I think ultimately athletes are like, they've been, they made biohacking they were the the original biohackers, I feel. So I would love to know for somebody that's just trying to improve their performance or be more connected in that brain body sense, whether, whether they had a concussion or not, what are those things that you look at when you have a new athlete that says, I just want to be better? Um, how can I, how can I biohack my body? If you could help me, whether it's some of the stuff we already talked about, but just thinking of big picture, making mm. somebody perform in a better way, what would the what would that answer be? Um, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think that if uh, if someone asked me for advice, I would say that uh, as an athlete to be a better athlete now, I would pay attention to biomarkers with specifically heart rate variability. Mm. Um, I think that if you really learn and understand how to use it properly, it's the single most important piece of information that you can have whether or not you're adequately recovered. There's too much psychology that's involved in whether or not you feel recovered, and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not objective enough. But heart rate variability is, um, and regardless of what type of training you're doing, what type of diet you're on, what type of sport you play, you know, your, your, that physiology doesn't care about that. It's like, Hey, you're ready or you're not ready. And it's, it's very valuable. So I would say that'd be number one. Um, number two, um, speaking to any athlete to improve their performance, I would pay attention to hydration. I think it's ignored. Um, especially in the era of, you know, uh, all kinds of protein powders and sports drinks. I think <laughs> just hydration with water is super important and very misunderstood uh, when it comes to performance. Um, and number three would be mobility in terms of recovery and also just as the athlete gets older and participates in his or her sport, you know, sport is sport, sport's not health. So, most of the time I see these guys end their career short because of injuries that could have been avoided if they paid more attention to mobility mm. and not getting rigid. Um, uh, because I think that's probably the single most important uh, recovery factor that you should look at. Yeah, moving and I'm going to work backwards because those are excellent answers. I love that. So being supple, I'm stealing that from Kelly Starrett, but yes. do, you, do you have your favorite mobility tools that you use uh, outside of, I guess, foam roller? I actually just got this new vibrating foam roller, which is very, I've uh, seen it, but I'm, I'm like, okay, we're getting, you know, it's less effort. I feel like on my course, part. <laughs> of course they made it vibrating. And then the next one that's going to come out is going to have music. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this, uh, yeah, I do have my favorite and I'm biased in a way because I really know the, the power and this is a, an entirely 
separate podcast, but that same osteopath that I referred to developed a system called LDOA, which is an acronym. And LDOA is a system that he developed in the 70s as part of his thesis in osteopathic school uh, to combat the big problem that was lower back pain in Europe at the time that was pretty much a global issue, right? Still is. Uh, So it's a system of postures that he developed that put myofascial tension um, with specific biomechanical positions of the upper and lower limb that decollapsed the spine and the pelvis uh, and the shoulder girdle at particular portions. And for me, it's the single most important tool that I use now with all my athletes, regardless of what they come in for. I love that. So that was Dr. Guy Voyer, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I will go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, definitely look that up because okay. um, that's a game changer. Um, in the words of many of my athletes, it really is. Um, and uh, it's kind of just now hitting the scene a little bit, but it's looked at um, from the outside like it's some kind of cool stretching and it's not. It's like legitimately um, a, a neuromuscular exercise. Is it similar in any way to fascial stretching therapy? Uh, yes and no, because there is in fascial uh, stretching, which I'm familiar with, you are respecting the fascial links, but this is putting the, uh, the biomechanics into play so that if I put your arms and legs in a certain position and I apply maximum myofascial tension, uh, I'm going to fascially elicit a decoaptation at wherever I choose, whether that be T6, T7, or uh, the anterior portion of your hip, or the glenohumeral joint. So uh, essentially, it's a very measured myofascial exercise. Which is so good because so many people are like, yeah, I'll foam roll, this hurts, I hate this, or okay, this is a little less tight, but there's no measurement and therefore it's less fun or less likely to be consistent. So I, I really dig this. Oh yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible. And uh, the more I use it, the more I realize how incredible it is. And oh, cool. It's worth every one of your listeners kind of looking up Eldoa and, you know, and just, you know, Try to see if there's someone that teaches a class in your area. I will. I totally will. Um, and then working backwards, hydration and just water. And I so agree. There's times where, so dairy really triggers my asthma. So I was always asthmatic as a kid. And then I took out dairy and it was magical. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a joke. Why don't people know this? But mm-hmm. another symptom of my asthma ever coming back is when I'm just dehydrated and how much it impacts it. And I would love, do you have a... Um, electrolytes that you add in, you know, I'm a big, I always use noon tablets because I think they're delicious and they make water less boring. But for mm-hmm. you, do you look at specific for athletes working as hard as they're doing specific minerals that you just love that you want to make sure is included in that hydration or is it just straight water? Yeah, no, it, 95% of the time it's water, um, but it's the type of water. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I won't bore your listeners to death, but a lot of research has been done on different types of water and, you know, uh, what, what's really in it and, uh, what's really beneficial. And I like to recommend a combination of mineral water and, um, and flat water. Uh, and I like, you know, I like 
Fiji. I like uh, Vichy. I like, uh, uh, there's a German one uh, that I really like, um, Grolsteiner, I believe it is. Yeah, it's that white, it's like a white yeah. label. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just, I, you know, I like to recommend uh, a mix of both. Um, but the biggest thing to understand about hydration is that there's intercellular hydration and extracellular hydration. And for my athletes, the intercellular hydration is very important to what you said, which was, you know, that whole mineral, vitamin mineral cascade that depends on water for that exchange in the cell. That's important. But then there's extracellular hydration, which is really the hydration that you're talking about in the fascia um, and all the connective tissues. So, you know, it's very simple. Do you want your uh, tissue to be like a sponge that you left on the windowsill in the sun? Or do you want it to be, you know, moist and, and, and pliable and supple? Because that's a big, big uh, factor in, in, in your athletic performance. Yes. Oh, I love it. Cause we have, um, I just opened a gym in Denver and we have a in-body 570, which measures. I don't know how accurate that is. Do you know anything about that test? I, I don't, but you know, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about it because that's one thing that I've never seen a really good tool to measure hydration. And I know that they exist out there, but I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah. So look up in-body and I in body and you know obviously the you know the higher number the more complicated it gets but the 570 for sure has that measurement is there a ratio i'm looking for when it comes to intracellular extracellular hydration is or is it just are there numbers that you want to aim for or is it just making sure that both exist um no i i maybe there is a number that exists but i don't know it um cool. i won't pretend to know it uh the what we recommend uh, the numbers are, I believe it's 1.4 to 1.8 ounces per pound of body weight. And it varies if you're a male or a female. So an average male, you want to take in about two liters a day. And um, the more athletic you are, and the more you sweat in the climate that you're in, uh, then you have to kind of change those guidelines but yeah i i kind of just you know tell them minimum two liters if they're my athletes i love it that's great <laughs> and then my last question working backwards again do you have a, a heart rate variability device that you feel is accurate or that you really like that's something i'm digging into and trying to find i found one that like goes on my mattress i found one that goes on my wrist i just don't know if i trust the wrist one so i would love to know your opinion on that so I've used a couple of wrist ones and the reason that I don't use the wrist ones and there are some good ones is because I hate the way it looks. <laughs> uh, I hate having that same band on all the time. So yeah. um, I actually am speaking to this company about making a couple of changes, but they're the best one that I've found and the heart rate variability is dead on. And that's a Finnish company by the name of Ura, um, O-U-R-A. And you can look up Ura Ring. I love yeah. it because it's a ring and it stays charged for a couple of weeks. Uh, it's, I didn't look into the dirty electricity, but Ben Greenfield told me it's the one with the least amount and I trust him. The EMFs. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Ura, I really love it. The changes they've made to their platform are outstanding. And for example, like last night I looked at my sleep score and I like, my wife and I look at our sleep scores and we joke around because it's like a little competition, right? 
Mm. And <laughs> so I, my sleep score was 90, which has never been 90, right? Because I have a one and a half year old. So <laughs> that's yeah, good. Get like a 60. And so I looked at it and I was like pumped. Oh man, I got a 90. That's great. But then I looked at my readiness, which is based heavily on my heart rate and heart rate variability. And it was just a little under 70. Um, and you go through how they came to that readiness score and you realize, oh, wait a minute, my body temperature was elevated, my heart rate was a little bit low at this point, and it was a little bit elevated at this point in my sleep, and oh, that's where they come up with this number. And you know what? You don't feel as great as you thought you should feel based on your sleep. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, very good. And, you know, again, another example, maybe you have, I don't know about your listeners, but I'll have a cocktail or two. And then you say, oh, I slept really well. And you look at the sleep score and it's, man, I slept seven hours, but the quality was really compromised because I drank alcohol. Mm, Your liver, your liver said no. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's crazy, but very, very accurate. Uh, Okay. So that's the aura ring. Yes, that's the aura ring. Okay, right. awesome. I have seen that. So I uh, at Paleo FX, I think is when they made their debut, maybe a couple years ago when I was there. And so I have heard of it. So I just will dig in a little bit more. I love hearing good feedback because I'm with you on the wrist thing. I don't want something on my wrist unless it's a Malabi that I can, I don't know, <laughs> be happy with. I love it. Okay, well, this has been, again... Ben, I'm just so grateful for your time and your knowledge. I ask all, I ask all my guests this because, you know, meathead as far as just lifting weights and being the best, but also hippie because we are just a bunch of hippies that are figuring out our own journey. I ask them, what is your spirit animal? If you know your spirit animal, <laughs> I so, I'm sorry. I didn't prep you. Good question. Wow. Talk about being blindsided. Um, what is my spirit animal? Uh, I would say that it's probably a shark. Ooh. Yeah. Because yes. I can't, you know, I'm always moving. I'm, I always have a, a, a you know, I'm a lifelong learner. I want to, continue to learn no matter what and get better at what I do and learn about everything. And I recently took up free diving because I wanted to, I love the ocean and I wanted to learn something new that was challenging. So oh my I gosh. think like moving you hold, all the time. Uh-huh. You hold your breath for like long, how, like how long do you hold your breath? This oh, that, it was, that was so horrible, Emily. I'm <gasps> telling you right now, I felt like such a little baby when we were learning the the uh, apnea breathing because I really only, I thought I was pretty good and I only like lasted like 92 seconds the first time but it's completely completely psychological you have to be able to it's a meditative state you're basically it's meditation in motion you're taking a deep breath uh, and you're learning that when you get high in carbon dioxide and I hope I'm not Uh, totally slaughtering this explanation but when your carbon dioxide is really high that that's what it is it isn't a lack of oxygen that you still have air and you're okay and you can hold your breath a lot longer than your brain or your limbic system is telling you to like hey race to the surface you got to get some air um so yeah it's it i would call it it's meditative movement 
Wow. Because this, so just so you know, I, so I've done a few, kind of like survivor, they're called challenges where you have to do all these crazy things and you know, you try to beat people. And the one fear that I have is like, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll be 80 feet above. I'll jump off of anything. I'll like lots of concussions here. I can handle it all. But the one thing that terrifies me is being underwater and holding breath. Like that, that is crazy. So have you gotten better at it? Do you just, you just work through it? Yeah, you get better. You know what? You train for it and you get yeah. better at it. And when you, you know, uh, the second time that I did it, I was significantly better because I was more relaxed and I wasn't testing. Like when I got the certification, I was testing. So you had to go down to 66 feet, which is <gasps> uh, just the thought of that. And when you see the, you know, they tie a kettlebell to a buoy and a rope and it's measured off and it's, you know, you do practice dives at 15. Then you do like, you know, you do uh 10 meters, then you do 15 meters, then you get, you finally get down to like 20 meters. Right. Um, and so it's daunting when you look at it that way, but after, after you go back, you realize, you know what, I'm okay. Like I, the, the typical dive takes you, you know, whatever, a little bit over a minute. And I know I can hold my breath for two minutes now, so I'm okay. So you relax. Wow. That is so cool. Where do you do this in New York? Is this a thing in New York? <laughs> not in New York unless you're freaking crazy. Um, yeah, you're not doing it in New York. I mean, some people do it. They do dry suits and all that. No, I learned in, uh, <clears throat> in North uh, Palm Beach and I've been uh, there and in Puerto Rico. So it's all warm weather stuff. I have no desire to suffer. Yeah, that's it's the cold. Is I'm about to head to Nicaragua and I'm ready. I am so ready. But <laughs> I, I seriously, well, the reason I started training for it because I wanted to surf and I wanted to have less anxiety when I when I got to bigger waves. The anxiety mm -hmm. comes from having to relax when you're holding your breath. I just that's so psychological for me because mm -hmm. you just all you want to think about is surfacing, and so then you fight it. And then uh, I love that that's a thing. I didn't know that people. I've seen people maybe in documentaries doing it, but I just love that you decided that's what you wanted to take up. Yeah, yeah, I love the ocean. And I was like, hey, you know what? I want to do something in the ocean and um, this, you know, eventually be able to spear fish and, you know, hunt my own fish, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 it's beautiful, you know, this, it's, it's, it's probably, I describe it as, um, probably the closest thing that a non-astronaut will get to being out of space because it's a different planet, but it's it's beautiful. Yeah, I agree with that. The scuba diving changed my life. I realized how I think, you know, you just are like floating with turtles and you're like, oh my God, this is all is well in the world when you can be able to experience nature and that to depths because you just have no... We, we realize how small we are. I think that's really what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, Ben, this is great. I'm going to send you what a shark means if it's your spirit animal. I think <laughs> you know, I have a little blur for you. Uh, thank you again. Where can people t find you? I know that um, your website is benvelasquez.com, but where else do you want them to go to to learn more about what you do and the, um, the work that you put out in the world? Yeah. So yeah, they can find me at Ben Velasquez. Myself and Dr. Steve Janopoulos have a podcast uh, as well, which we'd love to have, have you on. It's called The Thrivalist Manifesto. And it's that. basically, yeah, I, we would love it too. It's basically how people are thriving, um, whether they be academics or athletes or researchers, um, 
at all walks of life, uh, how they're thriving. And we somehow always make a link to human performance. So we link it to, you know, to, to nutrition and exercise in some small fashion. Uh, but you know, it's, it's how high achievers are, are thriving basically. I love that. This is great. See, mm-hmm. and, and social media, is there any social media? I know I saw you on Twitter, correct? Is Instagram, are you yeah. on the gram? Yeah, I'm terrible at Twitter, but I am on Instagram. Uh, and it's uh, Ben V in NYC. I'm almost positive. I'm embarrassed. I should know that by heart, but <laughs> I don't. And I apologize. But yeah, it's, okay. B, it's BV in NYC. BV in NYC. And on Facebook, it's just Ben Velasquez. Perfect. Okay. I'll link all of this uh, in the podcast notes. Uh, thank you again for your time and we will be in touch soon. Let me know about Thrivis Manifesto. I'd love to be a guest. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you and happy holidays to you and all your guests. Yay. Thank you. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Be well. Bye-bye.